To me, the thing that determines what's going on in the markets most is the ability of salespeople to learn the new language. And the new language for me of the last 18 months, it's like learning Spanish when you can't speak Spanish or Italian, is the language of being able to convince someone truthfully or persuade someone truthfully to listen to you and trust you so you can help them move. And there's a process involved in that. But I believe the overwhelming majority of people who have joined real estate in the last few years do not speak that language. And the biggest influence in markets at the moment, in doesn't matter where they are, is a trainer, a coach, a leader, or senior agents who are able to demonstrate this new language. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner, Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. For more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier for your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. And to get new episodes of Elevate directly to your inbox, sign up at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. All right. Welcome, everyone. Everyone coming in to this special live edition of the Elevate podcast. We decided to do something very special to end 2023. So my three guests, as you all might be aware, are all very well known to the industry. We've had each of them on the podcast multiple times. And on different occasions, people have heard me refer to them as the wise men of the industry. So collectively today, just in this room, we have more than 100 years collectively of real estate experience. And so this is a gift I've been wanting to give to the industry for a long time is to have all three of them at once. So it was, I don't know, a couple of months ago that I think I actually thought to myself, geez, Christmas is coming to us really, really quickly as usual. And then I sort of remembered the three wise men thing. And I thought, well, who comes at Christmas? The three wise men come at Christmas, delivering, you know, frankincense and myrrh and all those sorts of things. And I don't think that these three will be delivering frankincense and myrrh today, but I'm fairly confident that they'll be delivering the gold. So please join me in welcoming Mark McLeod, Chief of Strategy for the Ray White Group. Good morning, Sam. Um, everyone. AKA Macca. <laughs> Chris Hanley, Director and CEO of Byron Bay First National. So welcome, Chris. Good morning, everybody. And Matt Lahord, CEO of Real Estate for the Agency Group around Australia. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, so amazing to have the three of you here. And can I just say, when I emailed the three of you, I said, can I have a Christmas present and have you all at once? So thank you very much for joining me. I know, Maki, you're in Perth, Matt's in Sydney, and Chris is obviously in the beautiful town of Byron Bay. So today, what I want to do is cover off three things, basically, is I want to cover off a bit of a review of 2023 for you all, because it's been another interesting year, as this decade seems to have kicked off many interesting years have a look at what our wise men think of the outlook for 2024 and also to take your questions. So I'm going to launch straight in and say, Maka, what were some of the standout moments for you in 2023? Thank you, Sam. The standout moments for me and for us as an organisation was obviously the deployment of our Nurture Cloud program right across the group, both in Australia and New Zealand. That was a big project with over 30 people and our company working on that particular project. It culminated in, for us, you know, in the month of November, just over half a million calls that we made on that system. And it allows us as an organisation now to monitor calls to appraisal ratios and give us better insight. You know, for a long time, I believe the industry measures things by walking outside and licking their finger and seeing which way the wind's blowing to make decisions. We as an organisation are trying to be a very data-driven, data decision-making company. So that, that was one of the highlights. The other part was our, our people, of course. You know, we, we're a very large business, but you know, very family-orientated with being owned by the White family. Very family-focused in what we do. So the development of our younger people is always, always a highlight. You know, the rejuvenation of our businesses with people coming through our network to take over ownerships always, always a really pleasant thing to see. 
And finally, probably the resilience of our New Zealand business. Our Kiwis had a, a very tough year, probably a bit tougher than most of us. In fact, our November, we just passed one of the best months we've ever had in the history of the company. The way our New Zealand family handled themselves and conducted themselves through a very challenging market was, was a highlight for me personally. Yeah, amazing. And Chris, what about some 2023 highlights for you? I'm more micro, obviously, than the Mark is there because he's part of a team of 10,000 people, I think. But in our world, um, it's always in what I call retail real estate. I mean, it's always about your people. And we've got all the same people with us at the end of the year that we had at the start. And that of itself is a big thing. From our point of view, the highlights were the fact that we were able to, you know, what is a heavy headwind up where we are, you know, a very challenging market to do really well and keep our market share. We recruited this year and brought in some really good people with some new energy into the business, which was a great thing. And we're able, Sam, to continue to support our community in hard times. It's, it's, it's fairly tough up here post-floods, post-fire, and our, things like our tourism industry have been very hurt, if you like, over the last 18 months by all factors. So that's a highlight for us. And I guess the biggest highlight for me as a boss is seeing the smiles on the faces of the team. We had a sales meeting just before the meeting here this morning and we're all pretty robust and looking forward to 24. So I won't say survival is something to be celebrated, but I feel after all my years, having another good year like the one we've just had in difficult circumstances was a highlight in itself. So that's what it's like for us. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt, what about yourself? Not too dissimilar, Sam, to Chris. I think one thing that's been a big standout for us and a highlight has been the doubling of our rent roll in the last 12 months. We're nearly at 10,000 properties under management. So that went up from nearly four and a half, or it's probably a bit more than double nearly. That was one thing. And just the uh, teamwork of everybody behind the scenes in front of the acquisitions to pull that together. But I think the individual growth of our agents has been one big thing. Given all the interest rate rises, and I think Jock might have mentioned it before, the resilience of the people, I think the resilience of our agents to just keep backing up and really tweak their vendor management, tweak their buyer management, do what they need to do rather than say, oh, the interest rates are going up, I don't know how to manage it. That's probably one big thing that I've been as a highlight, a standout moment to me. Yeah, well, I might just stick with you for a moment, Matt, because you just mentioned interest rates. And I guess my next question was going to be, what are the factors that you've seen affect the market and real estate businesses the most? And interest rates would have to be a standout factor. What are some of the other things that have happened in 2023, which you think have had a big impact on the industry? It's quite interesting, the interest rates, the same, because the top end of our markets nationally have never been as strong. So the interest rates affecting probably about 30%, you know, of Australia, because as we know, 33% have a mortgage, 33 plus or whatever it is, don't, the others are renting. But the top end of the market, I think, has never been as bullish. I haven't seen it like this. We've broken a number of suburb records all across the country this year, and one just only as relevant as last. And this is the top end of the market I'm referring to. So even though the interest rates have been front and centre every time it's turned on the TV, it's not a blanket result for the entire real estate market. Some agents have had their best years ever in a rising market of interest rates where we've seen the rates go, what is it, 13 times in 16 months or something, which is unheard of. I think the other part that doesn't get a lot of mention in our industry seems to be very heavily weighted to sales. But one area I've always, and I started in property management as a junior leasing agent, is property management and the bullish market that that's been all through the year and the demand and the supply obviously is at critical levels at the moment. And it's kept the bullish rental market, even as of last Saturday, our team went out, they're still getting two weeks out from Christmas queues of people trying to rent properties. So I think the rental market's been another interesting backflip. And I think that comes from people not being able to buy, so they're renting, not waiting to chance their hand or their borrowing capacities being reduced, so they rent. So that's causing you know, the crunch in the rental market. 
well, there's never been a better time to be a tenant, I think, like if you can get somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, what are your thoughts? What are the big things that you've seen impact real estate this year? Well, obviously, interest rates, to Matt's point, are significant. You know, I think we look back on the year, 100% agree with Matt, that the interest rates are a fairly blunt instrument. They probably really haven't had the effect that the RBA would hope, certainly in our industry. You know, the first part of the year was a little bit sluggish, but certainly the last six months have been quite extraordinary. To Chris's point, it has been in certain areas. I know Chris and I have made and I know that there's been some strong headwinds in that part of the world. But Chris, off the back of a lot of factors in that particular area. But I think for me, the challenge has been that there was a whole group of people who joined our industry, and I'm talking sales now, who joined our industry through COVID. And through probably was, you know, the best three months I said at a talk recently through those COVID months, those COVID years, you could have walked down the street and find the youngest person that you could find. And they'll probably never see market like we had in that period in their lifetime. And I think well, there was a lot of newer people to our industry who struggled in the early part of the year with that transformation from marketplaces. They came into the industry where days and markets were low, clearance rates were high, where you know they'd go to an open for inspection and you know there'd be twenty-five people waiting in queues. You know, tongue in cheek, I said, you know, the criteria for making the sale then was breathing, being on time, and having to be. You know what I mean? And that certainly was a contrast for many of those newer entrants as the market certainly challenged. We certainly saw that, you know, obviously from the fortunate position where I get a view of New Zealand. We saw that in New Zealand quite graphically, you know, probably more so than Australia. But certain parts of the country, as Chris alluded to earlier. So that transition of understanding, and I think what's really important is, and I really know in my start state being controversial, is that what the industry seems to want to talk about the market all the time, but it's the actually only thing we can't control. And it kind of has my head in it all. You know, and I walked yes. to a gig the other I had to do the other day, and I was outside the room, and there was 50, 60 people. And I go, how's the market? You're at? And I go, why are we obsessed talking about the thing we actually have no control over? No one in this room has any levers whatsoever to control the economic future of our country, but yet that's all we want to talk about. And I think for me, let's talk about how you can operate inside and actually control the things that control the destiny. No matter what happens in the market, there is still enough turnover for individuals to have their best years ever. And sometimes that gets lost and we get caught up in this rhetoric, is my income in this industry is directly proportionate to the strength of the market, which I totally refute. And I think that's something the industry needs to kind of address rather than this constant talk about markets and migration and interest rates and stuff that we just have no control over. You know what I mean? And so and I and you know, I think people getting that understanding because let's face it, we've had a great six months. Twenty twenty four is not totally clear for me, and nor do I give it too much thought. That's Nerida's job. And we just trying to deal with the cards in front of us, all the ball at our feet and, and just keep playing the ball in front of us. That would be my advice to everyone. Chris my first little kind of Sermon from the Mount part this morning, mate. That was a good <laughs> was a mad for you. It only went on for a few minutes for a change. And can I answer this question, Samantha, as well? I'm going to come at it a different way. Now, I agree with what both the boys have said in general, big picture terms, but let's look at it in a more micro way. What are the influences in the marketplace? I'm going to use a word called sentiment. If you study Australian interest rates, and I'm not going to dwell on interest rates, but if you study them, there's been many instances in Australia where the interest rates have been higher than they are now, and I'm old enough to remember them. Interest rates of themselves, in my view, exactly as Marcus said, don't determine anything, really. There's another thing called sentiment. And sentiment, mood, vibe, whatever word you want to use, fluctuates and seems to me to change, and I won't say the media determine it, but they're very good at sipping it and picking it up, and then the narrative changes. Now, I'll give you an example. In my world, and back to what Matt said, I spend my time moving around the country a little bit too and spend time in some of those postcodes in the inner city where the high end, exactly as Matt said, still very healthy and doing very, very well. I read all the results. My high end, which is in the same state, right, and which is very strongly connected 
my high end here to some of those postcodes in the city is not acting the same way within exactly the same states and time frame. The reason it's not is because this thing called sediment is very powerful. And whether you're, for example, in a discretionary area like mine, as opposed to where people are buying and selling houses, not just for trophy homes, but to move their family or to move their life, you get a different set of circumstances. I also believe that what is happening at the moment in terms of what is influencing particular areas, one of Australia's leading auctioneers said to me the other day, a large number of the auctions he's attending at the moment that people have to sell. He's going and attending these auctions and interest rates there are playing a huge role. My point is it depends at the moment where you are and what sentiment is going through the heads of the people in that other world. One other thing that I want to go back and refer to to something Mark said, to me, the thing that determines what's going on in the markets most is the ability of salespeople to learn the new language. And the new language for me of the last 18 months, it's like learning Spanish when you can't speak Spanish or Italian, is the language of being able to convince someone truthfully or persuade someone truthfully to listen to you and trust you so you can help them move. And there's a process involved in that. And I believe, Mark, I want to say to you, I still believe this, we've had this conversation many times, that no one speaks this language better than Mark or explains it better than Mark. But I believe the overwhelming majority of people who've joined real estate in the last few years do not speak that language. And the biggest influence in markets at the moment, in doesn't matter where they are, is a trader, a coach, a leader or senior agents who were able to demonstrate this new language. I spoke, Mark, earlier in the year to, is it Abhi Khan, that young principal that's got one of your offices in Brisbane? You should have him on the program, Sam. I've never heard it explained better by a young boss than him about how to educate and coach your staff in this new language, this new ability to talk to your owners. So for me, if you ask me what is the single biggest issue in my market and my own teams, it's been our ability to learn and practice that new language. That's what's worked for us. Just one point on 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 Chris's comments there, because I agree. I will just say for all the guys listening that that new language and the understanding of that craft comes with one word that underpins that, and that's empathy. And we talk about education, you know, moving a vendor from X to West, and there's a lot of talk about that stock management, vendor management all that type of stuff. The industry, since the three of us started, has progressed, I think, in a positive way in the way that we've approached that over many years. But it starts with being very empathetic to the situation, to the person or people that you're dealing with. And I think if you start there and that's the bedrock that you build this one, empathetic to the situation that these people may or may not have to sell or not going to get. And it's not just empathy about the fact that they have to sell. It's empathy about the fact that they wanted to buy retirement home on the Sunshine Coast and they needed a certain amount of money. There's an empathetic point towards the fact when they don't get that. They might be selling their home and downsizing and want to give their kids a hundred grand each. And it's empathetic. They might not be able to deliver that to their kids. So understanding that the situation that Chris referred to is one of the challenging parts of our business. Yeah. Question, but it comes with the starting point of what we try, what I've tried to coach and what our people is, is come from empathy first. I just wanted to add that, but I think that sometimes gets lost. Mm. People see that as a very kind of harsh and direct part of what we do, but it's an important uh, first step for us and for me personally. Yeah, I was going to say, Chris, could you give us some examples of that language? Let me give you a scenario. Agent appraisals a property at $2 million. It becomes very clear within three weeks of the campaign that that's not even on the cards and they've got to pull it back. What sort of language would you be using? I spent the last 18 months as a boss on focused on that singular issue. I go right back to the years of the GFC, 08, 09, 010 in particular, those three years where you couldn't survive unless you were really good at this language. Mark and I both spent a lot of years talking about this. And the first thing, Samantha, to answer your question is that it's question-based. 
not statement-based. We can't help ourselves. A lot of us still believe that our job is to talk or talk at or lecture or tell people. doesn't work so well for me and it doesn't work so well for most of the good agents. We're afraid of silence. So the first thing is you ask questions over and over and over often. Like all parents know, you use repetition. Repetition works. You use the data. And the questions you ask, you know, are simple things like, why would you contact me to sell your house and not listen to me? What is it about the data that you don't believe? Or how did you come to this understanding? You want to ask open questions. Here's the thing, right? In the last 18 months, my view is this. Anyone who's put a house on the market, particularly in my world, is a realist, right? Why would you choose 13 interest rates, go figure, to put your house on the market? So my view is that the sellers are up for what is the reality, but the agents often, no offence, aren't up for the same challenge. We are scared. We don't want to tell them the truth. And we wait way too long, Samantha, we wait way too long to tell them the truth. What do you learn in real estate? You learn that if nobody turns up at an open house or nobody's sending you inquiries, there's something wrong. In lots of ways, everything we need to know sits in front of us. But the reason most people don't adjust their price is that their agent, they don't trust their agent, and their agent isn't asking them. I've got 50 questions. My most sales meetings in our business revolve around me coming up with or some of the others coming up with news questions to ask people, you know, what are you going to do if you don't sell? Where are you going to go? If you keep asking people questions over time, not always, but most of the time you'll move them to a place where they'll see the reality of the world. And Mark always used to have this thing, Mark, and I'll let you explain it, it's yours, but it's all about offers, evidence. It's all about presenting to people evidence that things that they can sink their teeth in, that is estimates of the value of what people think of the property. So even if it's not a real offer, it's being able to give them some idea of where the market or the buyers think their property sit. And you used the figure before three weeks. My view is nowadays with all the tech and the information we've got, you can do that within a week, 10 days tops. A couple of open homes now is all you need before you get a guesstimate, but it's questions based. Samantha, not statement-based. That's the language. I might go with Matt now because you are. I see you as my numbers man. Like every time we get together, somehow we always talk numbers. But we've been talking about these realistic conversations and we've been talking about interest rates a lot. So 2024, are we going to be having more of those conversations that are going to be more resetting expectations? Look, I think so, Sam, from what I can see and the amount of appraisals, properties coming on the market. But just to add to what both Mark and Chris said is I think a lot of agents have become complacent with the market being so bullish for the last couple of years. They've forgotten what set to sell meetings, the communication. You have to over-communicate. When you're listing a property, if you're very good at listing a property, it's as good as being going to, you're going to sell that at the end of you know a 30, 40-day period or whatever market you're in. If you have listed it, and manage the vendor's expectations at the beginning. Like your question to Chris was, you know, $2 million, that's what we think now are all of a sudden getting offers at one seven. Well, that owner should be prepped before you even sign the agreement. What happens if we're talking one seven, one eight, one nine? So you're not having, you know, I'm actually an agent myself for 30 years. I've never had ugly conversations with my owners because I set them up to sell at the beginning. And you have a much better relationship if you do that, and if you don't do it on every single sale, even if it's going to be a screamer at a listing, you've still got to do it. You've still got to have the face-to-face meetings. People have gotten into texting owners after open homes and then saying, I'll catch you during the week and all this sort of stuff. And they've got so many buyers lining up that have got what it's like to do a face-to-face meeting with the buyer, one-on-one before the auction. So that's the whole thing we can spend hours on, but setting up the sell, but I think in 2024, I've definitely prepped my team. One big thing, Sam, that people haven't looked at, which I was focused on a month ago, and I've been driving it into my team at least as early next week. I know we're laughing, everyone laughs when I mention that because we haven't even cut their hand yet, but uh, with the turkey. But the thing is, Easter is early next year. So if you're an agent, you think about this. You're going to shoot off, you're going to come back, do the normal thing, 
inverted commas, which agents say, oh, we'll come back, we'll start up in February, we'll wait for Australia Day. Well, Easter's on the 29th of March next year. So you're going to have a six-week period with a whole lot of properties that I believe are going to come on the market. And one thing we didn't sort of cross-check was we heard the media all the last 12 months, year and a half, talking about this mortgage cliff, right? Mortgage cliff, mortgage cliff. It's coming, it's come, it still hasn't taken effect. And as to Chris's point, I think a lot of people will need to sell, especially those that bought in the last two years. It's not necessarily ones that bought three or four years ago. It's the ones that bought in the last one or two years. So back to Mark's point, empathy with a capital E. But you're probably doing them a favour by selling it for them and getting a price that will probably be better than what they might get in June next year if they sell in February because I think they have a lot more competition. So what are my team doing? They're gone. Most of them are gone for the year. You know, this flog the agents, log them till the end of the year, right through to Christmas Eve, go and have three days, four days off, come back. Well, that's yesterday's fish and chips, that. I think have a great break early, but come back before the rest of the market's coming back. That's our strategy. Well, all our team will be on listing and selling and launching. And you don't need me to tell you this, but the stat with realestate.com, when's the two biggest days that when their spike meter goes up in the whole 12-month period? Boxing Day and New Year's Day. Yeah. Wouldn't you be there to catch that inquiry rather than waiting when it's all gone and people don't have time to look for property when they go back to work when you want to list it? To me, I think the whole market's changed. I don't think we'll ever see that normal agent takes four weeks off, they come back in, you know, end of January, they start. I think that's the internet's destroyed that theory because people are away, yes, but they're on their phones all day. They can get an e-alert. So they're not necessarily away away. And they've probably got more time than to go and look at properties when they're actually off work. Yeah. Just find it out there. I don't know what Mark and Chris think of that, but that's what we're doing and we will be doing that probably ongoing. It's funny you say that, Matt. We've been talking about the same discussion about Easter, saying that if you're not preparing, you're just gonna you know, you can have a very lean early part of the year. Absolutely. If you're not preparing for that now. I just might talk if I can, Sam, just about the term or the, or the thing that Chris talked about, sediment. one of the things that we talk about is that as the market changes, what actually happens is that the experience for the purchaser changes. So when the market was booming, they were going to open for inspections. There was people everywhere. They wouldn't purchase on their first weekend, and the homes that they looked at that weekend were fundamentally sold by the following weekend. Strangely enough... It was the sentiment and the feeling they were getting in the marketplace that forced them to act quickly. And most agents in Australia thought it was them. That's my smart thought it was you. What's actually happened now is that the experience that the purchaser gets changes. They start to come to opens. There's not a many people there. They see homes that were on the market that are getting withdrawn prior to auction and all that type of stuff. They see properties that are pricing and are getting reduced and not selling as quick. So the sentiment for the purchaser changes. What we don't see is that the agent reacting, reacting to the change of sentiment of the purchaser. You know, I have a saying, and if you understand this, you'll understand. If you don't, then you need to think about it. When the market was booming, the purchaser created the sale. When the market corrects, the vendor creates the sale. And the understanding of that, and the way that we've described it, and I have done since... I've started on this journey of understanding is it's like I'm walking my vendors down a corridor and at the end of the corridor is the door that is the sole door. And along that corridor, there's all these doors that the vendor can choose to walk out. And we have a conversation in our company that you've got to close all the doors. You've got to make sure all the doors are closed. And to match great point, if you don't communicate, if the vendor doesn't know what's going on, they'll choose to go out that door and go, mm. you know, where is my agent today? For an open for inspection, they'll say, I saw a car driving past and really happy to see And so, our job as an agent to a vendor is to start with empathy and then take away all their excuses. To take away all their excuses, you know, to ask a vendor every week, what else do you think I should be doing this week and getting this close to the sales? Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you feel that I'm yeah. not? You know, I think if you start with that and you say to the vendor from the start to Matt's point, this whole journey of moving event starts at the listing presentation, you know, and the way that you set that up 
And then, you know, you talk about what's going to happen. You know, like I can tell you now through systems that we have, it's a 31% less clearance rate when you don't do a vendor. Yeah. Wow. 31%. Now, let me tell you now, every agent out there who doesn't use a vendor report, I say to you, isn't your vendor unlucky they chose you? Now, the vendor report is not about necessarily the information that you give the owner, even though that's front and foremost, but it's about the mindset of the agent is I've got to do the activity that gives me a quality vendor and we follow a process which is traffic inspections, build a great platform. And that platform is vendor reports and offers, and then use that platform to have the discussions that you need to take. Mark, can I just butt in? I couldn't agree with you more, but can I at this, and I'm interested in what you say to this. By the way, that hallway metaphor I've never heard from you. You've hidden that from me so I couldn't pinch it. So let me tell not only will I pinch it, one of your best ones. I know why you've kept it, right? And let me go well, back. As I've always said, you, Chris, I'm writing the music. You're just playing covers on some of this stuff. Yeah, no, I, know, I know that. And I'm happy to play your covers. But that one you've kept under your up sleeve for a doctor. See the doors, actually, as you walk down there. And let me go back. The one about the vendor reports, 25th or whatever years ago it was, you started use Michael Willems. Michael Willems? Yep. The guy from the Gold Coast. And yep. I remember going to a coaching thing where you were working in a coaching space and I think you might have interviewed Michael. It's Michael, isn't it? It is Michael, yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember while I was doing marketing reports, I saw vendor reports, he was doing these things that had chapters in them. They were that long, right, in detail, right? I remember bringing them back and use it in my business. But let me ask you another question. What seems to happen is a lot of people in our industry hear that you should send out the report and they send it out. But they're a little bit like an X-ray without an explanation. They just send the report out, but they don't learn the language. Going back to language, they don't learn the language around the report, so they waste it. So what do you do with the people that you're training coach in this space to get them to understand the language that goes with the report? Well, the first thing is that report, and this is a great exercise, is that what I get agents to do is go and give your report and give it to the receptionist or give it to someone in PM or give it to one of the administrators or give it to anyone. Read the report. And if you were a vendor, where would you stick your expectation off the back of that report? And you'll be surprised how the person will say a figure that's nowhere near aligned to where that agent wants that vendor to be. That's the first point. Yeah. So you've got to spend time and effort on that. The second part, getting back to Matt's work point, we actually talk about, and what I've coached over the years, Mr. and Mrs. Vendor, you'll be getting a report from me, and here are the times and dates where I will be coming to your home yeah. to discuss that report. So all of a sudden, from the moment you do that, you send up this vendor meeting with the vendor report as one of the pivotal moments in the campaign. What a lot of agents do, and I've seen it, I'm sure you guys have, is that they just send the vendor report and say, I'll catch up soon on that. I want yeah. my was to have read that report and know at four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to be sitting with them either in their home, which is preference, or on Zoom if they're in the state, and I'm going to be having a discussion on that. The second thing is that you need to ask the vendor, in my view, Mr. and Mrs. Vendor, etc., what would you like to ask me about the report? And lots of times they will go off and I'm not happy with this and I'm not happy with the price and all that type of stuff. There are... I believe at that moment in time, the vendor is trying to get the agent to say one thing, and that is, don't worry, Mr. and Mrs. Vendor, it's going to be okay. And if you follow the energy cycle, which I've built over the years, is that the vendor becomes concerned, and then what happens is that the agent then rescues the vendor by saying, it could have been a quiet weekend, the football grand finals was on, it was Mother's Day, Father's Day, hot, cold, rainy, too what. According to most days, it's only three weekends a year that anybody good to sell real estate. <laughs> and the reality is, is that the vendors then try to get you to say it's going to be okay. Daniel, yeah. right then, can I just add something to what Mark said spot on? Is one frequency builds trust. Yeah. Right? We know that one. So the more you're communicating, the more trust you have. The first thing is you should never put something in a report you haven't already verbalized to the client, I think this is my view. And the other thing is when we're sitting down with a set to sell, 
to Mark's point, what we strongly recommend and we do is when we're taking instructions, we're actually putting in the appointments and sending off a calendar invite for the catch-ups ahead of time. So what it actually does, it forces the agent to go face-to-face with the owner. The owner knows we're coming at that date and if it's all parties, they've got to be there for that meeting. And the other thing is setting up in your ideal week to have buyer appointments. So before my vendor appointments, I'm meeting the buyers, not at the open home. I'm talking about bringing them in the office if it's an auction and saying, hey, the auction's on Saturday. It might be Tuesday. I'm going to see the owner tomorrow. Can you give me some feedback which I can take to the owner? Now, the owner knows I've met the buyers and I'm coming around. It just doesn't get any better than that if you're doing that the right way. And you can do it with private feeding too. It doesn't matter. Can I just add to that, Matt? What's interesting about what you said, if you think about the logic of this, is that if if Matt's my vendor and I'm taking Matt to auction in three and a half weeks, I might talk to Matt 50, 60 times. You know, by the time I have property, weekends, but I might only talk to the potential bidders once or twice. I'm asking the vendor sometimes to come down a couple of a percent. I'm asking the purchaser to move up. But there's an imbalanced communication between the vendor and the purchaser. Very true. And we're asking them to both do the same thing, but in reverse to a point of view, you know what I mean? And so we talk about lifting the communication to the purchaser, you yeah. know, leading up and to build that frequency that Matt talked about. So when I'm on the floor of the auction and I need Matt to increase his bid from 950 to 975 or whatever, there is a layer of communication that I've already had with Matt to able to achieve that for yeah. the owner. That's exactly right. And that all comes back to the set to sell. So we shouldn't be having these gaps. I mean, those set to sells in 2024, I think we're going to have to have a pipe of vendor management around communication because we don't know what's happening. Nobody knows. The interest rates are going to stay like this. They're going to go up. What's unemployment doing? We're seeing things on migration now. We're seeing who knows. And as Mark quite rightly said, nobody's going to control it. You can only control the controllables. Yeah. So I think there's some amazing advice there for everyone on managing vendors in 2024. I kind of want to pull in now, and there was a question there earlier, and I guess you guys had joined late, just an invitation to pop any questions into the chat box that you have for the three wise men. The big one that I have is Macquarie released a report just a couple of days ago, their 2023 benchmarking report. And surveying 431 residential real estate agencies in the country, they found a 6% decline overall in agency revenues, 11% in profitability. Now, I know you guys have said you've had a good year, but obviously this is what they, they might be seeing beyond that. They said the key challenges included increased staff and operating costs, which we hear a lot, competition, discounting, which we've seen some businesses falter this year as well due to discounting or the discounters. The report also noted a decrease in commission rates since 2009 and emphasised moving into 2024 the importance of focusing on productivity and efficiency and value in property management. Let's unpack this for a bit because, again, this is a survey and we know that numbers are numbers and then often I ask you guys what's actually happening on the ground. So I'm going to start with Matt. What have you observed that either supports this survey or contradicts it? We've had a lot of people join us, Sam. I mean, I'm only seven years old, as you know. We've got 700 people in the business now. And a lot of those people that have come from smaller businesses, exactly like those ones you're talking about, Macquarie are probably doing those where they've been running their own rent roll, maybe husband and wife team. The rents have gone up. The agents aren't coming in the office anymore. They're married to the business. They are the key salesperson. They don't really have got an ability to grow a team. That would probably support Macquarie's report. But I think in real estate, something I learned years ago, there's only two places you can be in. You're either growing or you're dying. You can't sit in the middle in this industry without continuing to improve, grow your team, grow their skills. You've got to constantly be doing something. You know, I've been doing that in my leadership roles for 25 years, whether that's recruiting, looking at costs you don't need. We get very complacent because it doesn't hurt to bring someone in and shine the torch in the dark corners in your business around your financials because we think we need everyone, everything and every tech and every shop and every bit of pieces that makes us like all the gadgets. But it's quite interesting. 
some of my top agents, I don't promote this, don't even log into their own agent box and CRMs. They're too busy finding a buyer, finding a seller and taking a fee, which is, I think, what a lot of the real estate businesses have got away from. They think they need all these things to find a buyer, find a buyer and find a seller and take a commission. We've been good in this industry and in selling a lot of extra things in which we probably don't actually need to operate. And I know White's probably, without a doubt, market leaders in terms of tech, that scale of business, without a doubt. But I think there's a lot of other real estates that are always trying to add stuff in which you don't actually need, Sam, to function. So I would agree with Dr. Macquarie. I agree they've got the data, right? But I see that. But what do you do if you're in that situation and you're not growing? Well, you know, what's your market share? Are agencies looking at their market share? Are they monitoring it? What's the goal? Do they have a goal that's written down? Are they following it? If you're a pilot and you're flying from Sydney to Perth and you don't put the GPS in, you're not going to be landing in Perth. There's no map. I think a lot of real estates don't have a proper map on where they're going. I mean, if they do, have they costed it out? Because it can easily blow out the overheads in this business. Staff, yes, get it. Rent's going up. Cost of living's going up. Cost of printing's going up. Everything's going up. But what do you really need to operate in this space? We've seen we can operate. COVID's given us a free kick in a lot of areas. We can operate doing a lot of things we didn't think we could actually do. Here's one of them now that we're actually doing, Zoom. This might have been a live conference costing a lot of money, airfares going you know, up and down and I'm not suggesting that's not still good, but interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Maka, if someone's sitting here listening to this either live now or on the podcast over the holidays and they just listen to that spiel from Macquarie that I just read out and they're thinking, well, this is me, I feel like they're talking about me, what advice would you give them? I think there's two problems. One is a focus on GCI as a marker inside a business. I think the only market you should be looking at is volume of sale. We have many, many people across this industry, both in our organisation, not the industry as a whole, whose businesses improve because the dollar value of their products gone from a million to two dollars. But if you look at their volume of sales, their volume of sales is actually not as good as it is. The work that we've done shows that about 83% of the industry peaks at year four to year five. And if you've been in industry for year four to five, there's a good chance that your business will start to peak. Now, that's really strange, but I'm saying that a, a logical path has led to an illogical outcome. <laughs> that again, a logical path has led to an illogical okay. outcome. It would make sense that if I've been selling for 10 years in Belimba, where I live, that every year I've got more past clients, I know my marketplace better, I've more market community involvement, the logical path should be that my business should be growing. However, 83 <laughs> business don't. So it's an illogical outcome from what's clearly a logical path. That comes from a lot of reasons. First and foremost is capacity, and that's a whole nother question altogether. But the area that we're pushing down now about productivity and all that, I totally agree with. I haven't seen the report from Macquarie, but productivity is there. We're looking at volume of sales now as a key marker for us rather than GCI. GCI is a very, very poor marker, in my opinion, you know. And working in blocks of 50, you know, how do I get my business to 50 sales a year? And there is just a function of time and activity. This industry is just a collection of tasks. And the reality is, is that most businesses today are defined by the tasks they're choosing not to do, not by the tasks they're choosing to do. Yeah. What happens when capacity hits, agencies choose not to do certain things. And that obviously affects their business. Focusing on here are the tasks I need to do to get 50 sales. Quantum number, you can do it, you can sit it down, I can give it to you today, you can make 50 sales in the market. Then how do I move that 50 to 75 and 100? Rather than this constant chatter on GCI of this and GCI of that, and to match if you focus on volume of sales, that'll have a much bigger impact on market share in any given suburb. And I think that people not addressing those issues, and to Matt's point, is one of the things I've been able to highlight where people do do plateau is that they don't want to invest. If I'm an agent, I have 50 hours available to me. If I'm an assistant, I have 50 hours plus 40 hours, and that's 90 hours. I think I wrote the article for you guys this week about that. So I have 90 hours available. Logic would tell you that if I have 90 hours available, I mean, against someone who's got 50 hours available, I should be running more business. 
And so as long as those hours are used correctly, and I think what's happened or what's happened is that agencies are kind of moving away from understanding what actually are, are the drivers of this business, which are collection of cars, driving to number of sales, and focusing on that rather than focusing on Jigshi. Chris, what uh, about you? I feel like my answer could go on for a week now <laughs> based on three or four things that both boys said, but anyone who builds a business as a leader or a boss around GCI has set themselves up for failure. And that's the first thing. It has always been a faulty measurement of just about everything. So I agree with that sentiment. Second thing is you can't cut costs to profit. You can only sell to profit. You can't cut costs to profit when you're running a business. You can only sell to profit. The third thing is if you go and look at great coaches, Sir Alex Ferguson, there's a good one. Sir Alex Ferguson was proudest, proudest as a coach of Manchester United not in the years when he had his greatest stars playing for him, but in some of the years he won the premiership when he only had some of his 30-plus players rather than his 8-plus players. If you're running a business at the moment, my figures, I'm going to back now to the Macquarie Bank thing, my market, if it was 6% different, I'd be ecstatic. My market where I'm operating, so I'm back in the micro, is 50%, 50% volumes less than it was it's the hardest market i've ever seen the last 12 months so i'd be super happy with six percent but here's the thing you should be as a boss someone running a business be able to make a profit in all markets you should be able to keep a good culture in all markets i did my numbers not just because i was on the program but i did them in the last three or four days I did them every which way, upside down and around about, and they didn't look any pretty every time I did them, right? At the end of the day, what Matt said, I'll finish with what Matt started with, with this talk. You can't park a business. You're going up or you're going down, same as a salesperson. And this morning, my session with my salespeople this morning was about setting themselves up for 2024. I don't like the word mindset. I've never liked it because it's, they make it out, it's like a switch. But call it an attitude. Anyone, whether you're a boss or a salesperson who's working on their attitude now for next year, it's got to be opportunities. It's got to be how can I improve? And if you're running a business, as I said, you can't cut costs to a profit. You can only sell to a profit. That's the attitude you've got to have as a boss. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We're kind of almost out of time here, so I want to wrap this up in a nice, neat little Christmas bow for everyone. But 2024, it's like, you know, not even three weeks away. Could I go around to each of you and ask you for one piece of advice you'd give to leaders or salespeople moving into 2024? And I'm going to go with beauty before age. So, Chris. That's <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy you said that. I was at a conference a little while ago, and I'll give you the piece of advice. The CEO of Mark's business was at a conference, and he said something there that stuck with me. It was in the middle of the year in winter. And my advice, it relates to something he said. My advice is do not look for technology to provide you with what you need to move your business forward, whether you're a boss or a salesperson. Tech's all fine. But to me, it's an adjunct. To me, it's just something that assists. It isn't the primary mover. And for me, moving into 2044, the more you can be analog, analog in the sense that you build all the process systems with the tech, but the more you can be focused on teaching people to communicate, the more you can be focused on people to improve their language, the more you can get people to be talking to people, which is all prospecting is, the more you can focus on that and encouraging your staff, whether you give them rooms to do it in, we've just built rooms in our business for the first time. I didn't think you needed these. But we've got rooms that where people can just sit and focus and concentrate on talking to other human beings. The more you can get that contact and the more you can get the number of contacts between your salespeople and members of the community, my view is even getting your numbers up will improve your business. So that's my, not tip, but that's my focus for next year. Amazing. Matt? Sam, mine's very simple. 
I've seen too many agents focus on GCI and this, that, and the other, and all the noise. I think don't confuse your self-worth with your net worth is one of my favorites. I think it's very important like to think about that. I think a lot of people judge themselves on how much this. As Chris quite rightly said, there's been a lot of people that over the years I've seen them as, I'm sure Mark has seen plenty of them as well as Chris. You know, they have their biggest GCI year ever and go out the door next year. Um, yeah. it, you know, it's the fake number in the industry, but don't confuse yourself, work with your net worth. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And Mac, I'm, your column in the magazine used to be called The Last Word, so I'm going to give it to you today. Well, it's not controversial because I couldn't agree more with both Chris and Matt. You know, obviously, you know, I talked earlier about our nurture cloud and tech. All that tech enables is us for our people to talk to more people more often, easier. Mm. You know, never mistake this that this is a people person business. I can show you factually now through our systems that the businesses in our network that are improving the most are the people who are having and talking to the most customers more often. Yeah. yeah. It's that simple. And the most valuable place in a real estate agent's world, in my opinion, is the dining room table. 100%. If we get into sit at more dining room tables than anyone else through the course of a year, we simply win. And I can show you, you know, data on curbside appraisals and all that type of stuff. Never lose sight of what this. You don't list homes, you list people. Yeah. And if you understand that you talk to more people, do more opens. I say to people all the time, how many opens do you do on the weekend? Three. Go and open them twice. And you'll simply talk to more people. And this, you know, all the tech in the world, and I'm heavily involved in it, as you know, but it's just about talking to more people with everything, with care, understanding that we take their most valuable asset in many cases and they put it into the palms of our hands. And respect that. Respect that as a great gift that everybody in this industry is afforded. And if you can do that with great empathy, you'll have a great. That's fantastic advice. So from the Elite Agent family to all of you, thank you for joining today. Merry Christmas. Thanks for tuning in to us all year. There's still a heap more from us to come, but I just wanted to get that out there to say Merry Christmas to you all. And big love and thanks to my three wise men or the, the three wise men my three favorite guests on the podcast, Matt LaHood, Mark McLeod, Chris Hanley. Thank you so much for being here today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast with thanks to Connect Now. To stay in touch with all things Elite Agent, sign up for our daily newsletter, The Brief, at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. 